and excellent medium-sized specimens. <clears throat> I greet you this evening. Someone left me a note wondering about the frogs and how, how and when they might see one of the little froggies. <laughs> Do you remember what kind they are mainly here? There was a big um, frog support initiative, uh, a requirement here at Spirit Rock. And I don't know if there's just one kind, the kind I have seen, they're, they're very small. They make a lot of noise for their size. And you might see them by lights at night. They like to come out near lights because they feed on insects that are attracted to the lights. So do be careful these nights going around because they, they could be out and they're so small you might not see them. And they also like to, I found one had stayed between, I had my shoes outside and it had found a place right between them because it was nice and dark and cool during the day. So be careful because <laughs> the froggies are our friends. No matter how you feel, maybe you like the sound of them, maybe you don't. Pleasant? Unpleasant? Neutral? <laughs> Might change. It's not inherent in frogginess. <clears throat> I was just, uh, had a chance to do a little bit of walking meditation before coming into the hall this evening. And I, I wonder how many miles I've logged <laughs> over a long time now. Definitely hundreds and maybe it's in the thousands. And I haven't gotten anywhere. But I think some things have fallen away. There's some indication that that may have happened, at least a little bit. I haven't been too, too fond of the, the time change that we did uh, a couple days ago. I haven't been just noticing my heart leaping up with gratitude for that. But I did notice one benefit this morning is um, that it was still dark enough to see some kind of cool celestial action. So uh, Jupiter and Mars and the star Antares are visible. And I think Saturn was, and I, I didn't, it was a little cloudy lower down closer to the horizon. Saturn might also be up. They're in kind of a nice row. And uh, you might have a look. I, I love the star uh, Antares, it's one of my favorites. It's, a, it's in the constellation of Scorpio and it's a red supergiant star. If, if we substituted it for the sun, it would um, extend somewhere between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. So it's big and uh, much, quite a bit more massive than our sun. It's around 550 light years away. So that means when you look at it, you're seeing what it was like 550 years ago. It might not, might have gone out by now. And, and the, the astronomers think it's a, it's a likely candidate to become a supernova. Maybe that'll happen this morning, tomorrow morning. 
Yeah, you should get up and look in case it just happens that 550 years ago, tomorrow at 6 a.m., it, it blows up. It might be visible in the daytime if that happened. It could be so bright. The most distant object you can see with the naked eye is the Andromeda galaxy. And in February, I was talking about it a bit because it's, you could, I could see it sometimes. It's two and a half million light years away. That's the most distant thing you can see without a telescope. And that's puny compared to the size of the cosmos. You know, they use these cool big telescopes and they can see somewhere around 13 and a half billion light years distance. And they like to look as far away as possible because they're looking that far into the past. That's how long it takes light. That's at 186,000 miles per second. The nearest stars, I wonder how long I'll keep going on like this. <laughs> the, the nearest star is um, four and a quarter light years away, except the sun, that's about eight and a half light minutes away. So even it might go out and it would be a little while before we'd know. So next time the sun rises, you know, really check that baby out because it might go out. It would take about eight, a little over eight minutes before we'd know that. Now, it would be a big change then, though. <laughs> I love to look at stars and things because anytime you look any distance at all, you're looking into the past. And um, sometimes really far into the past, two and a half million light years for the most distant naked eye object. But it's, but it's happening right now. How do we reconcile that? The concept of time gets really stretched and kind of rendered almost meaningless when you think of things in this way. You know, all we have is the present moment. This one, but they don't even last. There's no present moment, really. By the time you show up, it's already gone, already gone, already gone. So it's this natural time machine, that's cool. This is uh, some lines, a couple of excerpts from uh, T.S. Eliot and Bernd Norton in the Four Quartets. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been and what has been point to one end which is always present. Or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end, and all is always now. So, that should have cleared that up for you. (laughs) 
You know, and then what is light? You look at the stars. What is that stuff? You know, scientists can't pin it down very precisely. You know, depending on how you choose to measure it, it looks, sometimes it looks like a wave. Sometimes it looks like a particle. It's not either one of those. It doesn't have any mass. It has qualities that are measurable. There's momentum, there's pressure. There are effects from it, it conveys information. But there's not anything. There's not really thingness there. But it's measurable and it does stuff. It, we can think of it as its function is carrying, conveying information. Information that's carried in the form of light that hits the eye door if we have functioning eyes. Contact there. We can see what it was like 550 years ago up at the star Antares. Go on a time journey tomorrow morning. I think Jupiter's about two light hours away or something. It might not be there anymore either. So light contacts, seeing consciousness arises, this process, it's known. And looking at stars and planets and the beauty of the night sky when it's clear, you know, can, it can stretch the mind, even maybe you know, stop the thinking mind in moments and, and we open to wonder and mystery and it can take us beyond our limited, often self-absorbed world, I think. It can have that effect. And, you know, we, we narrow and constrain and limit who we are what we think reality is through our beliefs and our ideas and our views about it. What we hold to be true. And, and this view is often so woven into the very fabric of our perception that we don't see it as a view. We don't even question whether it's actually connected to any kind of truth or bigger reality. One of the powers of this meditative practice and path is that it, it can let us open that view or let us see through the views. Take us below the concepts and ideas and our unseen ideas that are often there about the nature of things and who, we're, who we are, what we are, what we're capable of. And this has profound, uh, potentially profound consequences for us in our lives, in our understanding. So what's the mind? Like that's hard to pin down too. What is mind? Where, where is it? Does it, is it locatable? Where, where does mine end and yours begin? Is there a space between them? Do they overlap? We tend here to say, well, somehow maybe it's kind of inside the skull or something. That's kind of, yeah, a Western view, but that's not the view that's held by all. You know, if we start looking for it, we can't find it. There's not anything there. There's, there's energy. It's measurable. It, it, 
can be measured in the same way as light by processes and conveying of information. And there's this energetic sense of, of it. But it really can only be, we can only experience mind in terms of process. The direct experience of it is, is not as a thing, but as a process. All we can know, we're aware of, of these contexts at the six sense doorways, six sense bases, the way that we know anything. <laughs> Contact at the eyes with light, ears with sound waves and so forth. And then there's um, knowing that arises, sense consciousness, hearing consciousness, seeing consciousness arise rises over and over, this process, contact and knowing, contact and knowing. That's mind. You know, we attribute this, this thingness as though there's something with substance and some inherent ongoing existence, but we can't find it in that way. We can't find mind outside of our experience of this process of contact and knowing. The minding, minding is maybe better. We can experience minding, it's doing its minding, but it's not minding its own business. <laughs> it's nature, it's like light. Light is an aspect of nature that has lawful functioning and it's understood and measured in terms of qualities and processes and effects, you could say. And, and mind, so one of the Functions of mind is this knowing, this knowing aspect of the mind. It's what it does. But we're not doing that. It just happens. It's just nature. So we, we spend all this time on retreat. We're observing mind and body with this uh, very close. This I like to think of it as a radical kind of intimacy because we're really trying to get close to its essence and the the essential nature of things, the mind and the body. Sometimes we like what's going on and sometimes we don't. A lot of the time we don't, maybe more time than not. Sometimes minds and bodies do what we want, behave the way we want in in an acceptable way. But a lot of the time we're getting to this state where we're kind of in some contention, we're struggling with something that's going on, especially with the mind, you know, gets up to so much nonsense. We don't have really any control. This is, uh, these are the words, the lyrics of a song by Jimmy Dale Gilmore. It's called, My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own, and I won't sing it, spare you that. But I'll read some of the lyrics. My mind's got a mind of its own. It takes me out a walking when I'd rather stay at home. It takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone. Oh, my mind's got a mind of its own. I've been doing things I thought I'd never do. I've been getting into trouble without ever meaning to. I'd as soon settle down, but I'm right back up again. I feel just like a leaf out in the wind. I seem to forget half the things I start. I try to build a house and then I tear the place apart. I freeze myself on fire and then I burn myself on ice. I can't count to one without thinking twice. (laughs) 
in one teaching, uh, the Buddha pointed to or, or described the mind as having a quality that it was inherently luminous, radiant, pabasara citta, pabasara, brightly shining, citta, mind, heart, in Pali, a beautiful sound, the pabasara citta. And he went on to say that this, this radiance, this luminosity is, is obscured at times by, um, in the translation it's uh, said, by adventitious defilements. The word adventitious is not, not very commonly used in everyday chit-chat, but it means visiting. It means a thing that is not inherently part of something. It's a, it's a visitor. It's not intrinsic to. Oh, and, and this word defilement is a translation of the Pali word kilesa. We've been using this a lot. We know this, this understanding of kilesa, which is catch-all term for uh, the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are often described as the uh, three unwholesome roots or the, the roots of suffering in our lives, in the world. And the path and freedom is um, seen, is understood as uh, resulting or arising from the process of seeing through, understanding these root causes of suffering and, and ultimately through them being uprooted or at least rendered powerless, unable to move the mind in any way. It's one way of looking at the path. And the, in a simple definition of, of Nibbana, the Buddha uh, spoke to this, I've read it before, maybe others, uh, this month and in February, uh, he said at one point, the extinction of greed, extinction of hatred, extinction of delusion, this I call Nibbana. So this, this understanding that there's a relationship between stress and struggle and suffering and, and these uh, mental energies that visit the mind from time to time. These energies, you know, it's so tempting to see them, especially if we call them defilements and roots of suffering. Bad, bad defilements, bad kilesa evil, wrong, but they're, they're just misguided. They reflect, I say this, I'm saying it again, they're a reflection of the untrained mind's attempts to deal with the fragility, unpredictability, uncontrollability of conditioned life, of attempts to deal with anicca, dukkha, anatta, these universally arising characteristics, these universal qualities of all conditioned experience. They're just trying to help. They just are misguided. And they, they, um, they reflect some deeply conditioned mental habits. <clears throat> so thinking in these ways, in these, these terms, uh, points to something really um, important. Um, 
it may seem obvious, but it's profound. And, and I'd like to read a, a little bit from the teacher Tanisaro Bhikkhu um, about this. He said, to perceive the mind's luminosity, this pabasara citta, is to understand, it means understanding that the defilements as such as greed, aversion, delusion are not intrinsic to its nature. Without this understanding, it would be impossible to practice. Well, this is really important here, this understanding, because they, if they were inherent to the mind, then there would be no, ultimately no way to be free of their influence. The fact that they are visitors means that that freedom is possible. It's a reality. And even though these kilesas can obscure this inherent luminosity, this pabasara citta, they don't change the nature of the mind. And so you could say one aspect of the path or one way to look at it is is this um, reconnection with this inherent radiance of mind, or you could say it's, it's luminosity or purity underneath. It's revealed when these temporary obscurations aren't there. We reconnect with that. Or you could say we're discovering our true nature or the mind, the heart's true nature beneath these deeply habituated patterns of reactivity the mental habits that are very strong and and they have this effect of obscuring this radiance. But there may be times when we we seem to touch that in some way. We this kind of primal radiance or an essential nature. Because these these defilements, these kilesas, they aren't always there. I don't think we could take it if they were always there. And so we, we connect with that, we touch it, we get a feeling for it. Things open up into that sense. And, and, and it's, it's already, it's just naturally aware, already free, already wa- always was, always will be. And even though we don't st- stay there with that connection, it may be fleeting, it may be obscured again quite quickly, it's, it doesn't mean that it's not true. And we need to remember that the forces of, of these habits, these misguided attempts to deal with the fr- fragile, unreliable, changing nature of experience, they're really deeply woven in there. They're deeply entangled with uh, every th- our whole view of life, the way we see our perception. And we don't want to underestimate the power of these energies in our lives, in the mind, because we see over and over how strong that is. And we see, uh, we don't want to underestimate them and we've been engaging with them for a long time, maybe for lifetimes. And we've been engaging with them on their terms. And a lot of the time they have the upper hand. 
But with this practice, this mindfulness changes everything because we have a possibility to understand things in a way that they, we can really shift how we relate to these things. We can start relating to them on our terms. <laughs> Don't to get rid of them before we're free. At least on the way to freedom. And we can stop, the first thing to do is to stop taking them personally. And just see them as these visiting forces. The third foundation of uh, third establishment of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is this, this uh, teaching that contains the meditation instructions that we're using here for this retreat. The third foundation is citta nupassana, mindfulness of mind, contemplation of the mind. It's one of the shortest sections, but it contains some of the most powerful, liberating uh, potential and, and instructions there. And it begins as they often do, I think all the sections begin, how practitioners does one contemplate, abi- does one abide contemplating mind as mind? How does one do this? And then there's a series of instructions. The first of these uh, is this. One understands mind affected by desire or lust, raga, by wanting as mind affected by desire. And one understands mind unaffected by desire as mind unaffected by desire. And then the same repeated, one understands a mind affected by hatred and one that is not affected by hatred, by delusion and not affected by delusion. So it goes through these, these very uh, kilesas. One understands if they're there, knows this, ah, it's here. And one understands when it's not here. Very simple knowing if they're presently arisen, seeing how they affect the color condition the mind. So it's this broad general contemplation of the mind as determined by whether these things are there or not, these mental factors. Uh, the teacher, uh, Venerable Analayo, has this wonderful book on the Satipatthana Sutta, and there's um, an interesting, powerful aspect that he points to here. It's noteworthy that the contemplation of the mind does not involve active measures to oppose unwholesome states of mind, such as lust or anger. Rather, the task of mindfulness is to remain receptively aware by clearly recognizing the state of mind that underlies a particular train of thoughts or reactions. It doesn't involve, there's, there's not in this teaching there's not an instruction then to, to do something to alter that. Why would the Buddha do that, instruct that way, instead of, you know, shouldn't we be trying to get rid of these, these roots, these nasty defilements, oh, walking buckets of defilement that we all are? <laughs> that doesn't sound too good. <laughs> we got to be careful how we think about these things. So the primary reason for this 
non-interfering attitude is that it really deconditions the tendency towards reactivity on one hand or suppression and denial on the other hand, which is, is engaging with these on their terms, right? The mental agitation and tension in regards to the presence, the contents of the mind, the presence of these energies is reduced, attenuated, eventually overcome, not by struggling with them or denying that they're there, but through this simple direct observation, this process of recognition and acceptance really shifts our relationship and has immediate and long-term benefits. And I had such a clear experience of this a few years ago. I was on a, doing a period of retreat at home, self-retreat in, in my home, and, and I was not happy with what my mind was doing. I wanted it to be one way and it was another way. And you know, I had mindfulness. I wasn't like really duking it out, but it was I clearly was not um, just at ease with that. And then I remembered this teaching and just, oh, I don't have to, all I need to know is it's like this. It's not concentrated. It's agitated and restless. And immediately all struggle fell away, just in reminding myself, my job is to know how it is, not, not to get into struggle here. I mean, that's not in this teaching. Notice how it is, and then start struggling and tie yourself into knots <laughs> because it's not the way you want it to be. No one has ever given me that instruction. Ever. But we sure do that. We take the contents of it, we take this, the presence of these mental energies so personally as though, as though them being there and then the different mind states that they give rise to as though somehow, you know, we take them personally. We, we move from recognizing them to, to this attitude that it's not only wrong or bad that they're here, but that I am wrong and bad because they've arisen. I am a bad person. This blaming attitude. If I was any good as a medit, if I was even a decent human being, they wouldn't show up. I mean, look what we do to ourselves. It's it's a kind of madness. It's like taking the weather today personally, <laughs> as though somehow this rainy weather is is somehow down to us in some way. You know, these weather, the weather arose out of conditions here, right? These different conditions came together. Bless the rain, oh God, bless the rain. We need it so badly. But it's, it's dependently arisen out of this condition, this flow of conditions that have come together. This is some, these are some words from Sayada Utejaniya. Because the mind is covered by defilements, we are unable to see, we are unable to see Dhamma or to understand nature as it is. What is the meaning of nature? It is cause and it is also effect. The cause and effect process itself is nature. 
Whatever is happening in the present moment is nature, is dhamma. Even defilements become dhamma, become nature. Nature is becoming, nature is arising, knowing is arising, awareness is arising, object and mind, object and mind. In nature, there is nobody there. Nature is not us, it's not them, not others. Nature is just nature. Dhamma is ever present and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Nature is teaching us Dhamma, but we aren't able to hear. We can't know or see this Dhamma because of the defilements in the mind, because there isn't enough understanding or wisdom. But if we can think and see nature as it really is, the mind is free and free from defilements. It's so great to have a chance to be on a retreat in a place like this where there's so much space and we're living in this beautiful environment and, and nature can teach us so directly. If we just go out and light it in, it will tell us everything we need to know. It's, it's always, it's just, it's shouting the truth at us constantly. That's Dhamma. That's Dhamma talk. There, here, everywhere, nature inside, nature outside. So when we're relating to these visiting energies on their terms, taking them personally, identifying with them, and then struggling with them, it's like we're, we're feeding them. And if you feed them, they get stronger. But with mindfulness, we can change our way of relating to them. We can stop feeding them. And there's a critical understanding that follows on from this in terms of our lives in the world and the motivations behind the actions that we take. Because it's not just that the kilesas can obscure the mind and, and take the upper hand in our own mind stream, but they, they often are the underlying motivations for actions. And if we look around the world and we see all of the avoidable suffering and all of the wars and injustice and violence and struggle, if we take that down to what's really going on there, it's, it's the acting out of these unwholesome energies in different ways. They're giving rise to actions, actions of body, actions of speech. So for our own happiness, for happiness in the world, understanding this has profound consequences. It informs our lives so fundamentally. So training ourselves to meet these energies in their arising, to understand what they are, there's this possibility of a choice. We can take back the power that we've ceded to them, that we've given to them. And implicit in this teaching is that there are these unwholesome roots of greed, of hatred, and delusion. There are also these 
wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or we could express that posit- in a positively, positive way by saying the roots of um, generosity, of love, compassion, of wisdom. And there's this, I think it can be seen as a, this implicit understanding that in the absence of the unwholesome, the wholesome uh, is there or arises spontaneously. It's just there. We don't have to get it and stick it in there. So we, we understand understanding mind as a dynamic process and not a static thing that's endowed with certain qualities. And we can train ourselves to understand these visiting energies of kilesa as just that, as visitors. Stop feeding them through identification, through reactivity, and they lose their power. And eventually they fall away entirely. So, and we have this possibility of making wise choices in terms of the energies we, we want to follow, what we want to cultivate, what we want to abandon. You know, we can see in the moment what's got the upper hand in the mind, what's running the show, what's driving the bus. And there's certain things we're not going to want to, we're not going to want to let them drive. And this can be the doorway to compassion and forgiveness. It's such a doorway to that because when we study our own mind and heart, in a very real way, we're studying everyone else's. Yes, there are the differences and our conditioning is, is different and there's certain things that I would never be able to understand. But so much, it's much more they're much more alike than they are different. And the more we understand these processes in our own mind and heart, the greater our capacity to understand what's going on for others. And we know what it is. We know what happens when, because we see for ourselves what happens when confusion, suffering, greed, resistance, aversion have the upper hand and the actions that lead that follow on from that. We see what's happening there and we can understand what that's like for others, even, even in situations where the amount of confusion and suffering is maybe beyond anything we've ever experienced. And so they're, they're, then compassion is the response to that, I think. We can understand what's going on and we don't forgive harmful actions, but we might possibly begin to forgive a suffering being. Through understanding. This, this sense of this non-reactive relationship to stop struggling with these things totally shifts everything. And they can shift from the obstacle to our freedom, to the vehicle for understanding. Right in the moment that can shift just like, like that. I, 
I just touch briefly on, on some of the, uh, just mostly been talking about the, the first part of this, t- this section of, of chitta-nupasana, mindfulness of the mind, but um, the rest, there, I'll just read the rest of this uh, the sutta, it's really quite short. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. One knows a great mind to be great and a narrow mind to be narrow. One knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. One knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. Again, we we know a lot of this um, section has to do with um, again, it's it's different qualities that are present or absent. Um, this this understanding in terms of the quality of the mind. So in any moment we can just step back. Oh, it's like this. It's not concentrated. It is concentrated. It's narrow and constrained. Constrained by dullness, something that causes the mind to become narrow. It's restless, agitated. It's liberated or it's not liberated. It points to this possibility that that we might know Moments of liberation, yeah, okay, there's the, the big liberation, the fully enlightened mind and heart where these energies have been rendered powerless or they've been uprooted and they don't arise at all. But it also points to this possibility of a mind that temporarily is free, where these energies aren't arising, this pabasara chitta, this radiant mind, brightly shining, in a moment, we get a taste of that possibility. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop now and end with um, a few words from uh, the Thai master Ajahn Mun, who's a teacher of many famous. Uh, Thai forest masters, teacher of Ajahn Chah, who we quote a lot, Ajahn Mahabua, famous teacher. Ajahn Mun was a, a teacher. He, he seems to have been a pretty special teacher because people would just spend a little time with him. That was enough. You know, a few days, he wandered around. He, he didn't stay put anywhere. Well, yeah, I spent a few days with him once in my life and that was enough to shift there their practice, shift their understanding. And he, he referred to this pabasara chitta, this shining radiant mind. He, he called it the primal mind. Now these are some words from him I'll end this evening's talk with. The mind is something more radiant than anything else can be. But because counterfeits, passing defilements, come and obscure it, it loses its radiance, like the sun when obscured by clouds. 
Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting in, drifting along, and they obscure the sun. So meditators, when they know in this manner, should do away with these counterfeits by analyzing them shrewdly. When one develops the mind to the stage of the primal mind, this will mean that all counterfeits are destroyed, or rather, counterfeit things won't be able to reach into the primal mind because the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed. So even though the mind may then still have to come into contact with the preoccupation of the world, its contact will be like that of a bead of water rolling over a lotus leaf. Let's sit uh, quietly together. Thank you for listening this evening, and uh, we have have some time for walking meditation. Maybe out in the out in the cool. It's definitely cooler out than it is in here, and uh, we'll have some chanting at nine o'clock. So please come for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.